Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. Times get tougher even if they don't. Today is August the 16th, and this is episode 2273 of the Survival Podcast. And it's kind of a special, somewhat guerrilla podcasting episode. Uh, our intro segment will be very short. I won't have any commercial content in today's show at all. Uh, I'm going to get right into it with John Pugliano, and we're going to be talking about the richest man in Babylon. I did want a little bit of an intro to just key you in on something that may be beneficial for you to know. And that is that there's some things that are going to happen during this podcast that were completely unplanned, and one or two of them might do something like, oh, I don't know, wake up a baby or upset your dogs. Okay, so like if you have a baby sleeping and dogs in the house, you know, when I used it, this is not what it is, but when I used to do a knock for the advertisement for bulk ammo, and I'd be like, knock, 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 and I would knock on the desk. I had, the reason I stopped doing that is because several people told me that made their dogs bark, right? So uh, there's, there's, there's something that's going to happen that's probably going to make dogs that hear it bark a lot. During this episode, uh, you're even going to hear me at one point say, well, we'll edit that out and we're not going to. So it, it should be fun. On top of it all, this is kind of really capping off the core of this week. You know, we started off this week with learning how to sell. We talked about managing a farm business as a business and solid business principles with Darby Simpson yesterday. Today we're talking about wealth creation, wealth management, and how to win in life with money with uh, one of the most switched-on people I know on that subject, expert council member John Pugliano. The way this podcast happened is I was going to do this show myself. And John said, hey, I'm going to be in town you know, next week. Is there something we could do together for the show? And I said, well, I've been thinking about doing Richard Man in Babylon. He's saying, I based my whole life on from when I read that book when I was a kid. You know, by kid, he means like early 20s. Um, and he's like, yeah, absolutely. So he put together an outline. He set it over. I took a, a look at it. He said, yeah, this will work. So we sat down at my kitchen table to do the podcast you're about to hear. And uh, like I said, some interesting things do happen during it. And with that, I want to say, hey, John, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Hey, my pleasure, Jack. Great to be here. You know, um, I kind of proposed this idea to you uh, a few weeks ago when I knew you were going to be coming out here uh, of doing an episode on the book known as The Richest Man in Babylon. It's, it's something I've based a lot of my life on. I know you have as well. Um, do, you, do you remember how you came to know about this book? I do, and I remember uh, a few episodes back here, and you say that you uh, were given it by someone, I think a sergeant or somebody when you were in the Army. I read it when I was in the military, too. I was in the Marines. It was 1981, 82. Um, I was getting ready to get out. I, I got out of the Marines in 83, and so I was starting to read books to prepare myself for my civilian life. And I don't remember how I got it or who passed it on to me, but it was one of the ones I'd read. And, um, you know, it, the simplicity of it is really, I think, what's stuck in my mind over the years. Cool. And I, I, what I think made that book work so much is it was an interesting narrative. It was a, like one of those books that tricks you into learning. And even a lot of the lessons in it are just basically repeated over and over with different narratives behind them. Uh, but they're what you would call universal truths or absolute truths. When you, when you actually look at them, you know, a lot of things are opinion. 
But when you actually look at principles and money, they're, they're laws, and that's actually what they call them in the book. In fact, we're going to lead off with the section called The Five Laws of Gold. You said your version of that is money flows to where it's treated best. Yeah, that's, that's the way I look at it is that um, whenever I look at, at money and who has it and who doesn't, it's, it always comes down to, you know, as, as talked about in this book, um, the way people act or the certain things they do that attracts the money to them, and it's not mysticism or some nonsense, nonsense yeah. secret uh, thing that Oprah's going to talk about. It's there are principles that work, and there's people that live by these kind of prosperity laws. Uh, but I've always looked at it as money flows where it's treated best. If you're not being paid what you think you are, should be or you're not getting the kind of returns you want or whatever. You're being bad. Like, what's you're, his name? Yeah, the, the jerk on the Shark Tank, Kevin O'Leary. You're, be, you're being, you're, you're treating the money poorly. He says something like, you, uh, I say you hate money. He has another way, like, you don't deserve the money, like money hates you or something. Right. And he's right. And it's true at the, the, the micro level of the individual investor we're talking mm. about today. But real laws always scale up and down. So it's true at the macro level as well. If you think about it, this is exactly how countries attract businesses. So the countries that are that just are horrible to the money, that don't deserve money, that tax the hell out of money, businesses leave. And then where money's treated well, businesses move into, investors move into, whether they do it for tax sheltering like in the Bahamas, or we see businesses moving into the United States now because we've lowered the, the corporate tax rate. I think the first time I ever heard money goes where it's treated best was from Peter Schiff. And he's not the guy that I follow for everything, but I think he nailed that one. Yeah, and it, it really comes down to, I think it's Gresham's law, uh, the economic law, where, where bad money forces out good money. Correct. So if you bring in, that's, I think that's Peter Schiff's angle of it. Is yeah. You bring in you, you, you uh, bring in fake coins or something that doesn't have real silver in it, the, yeah. those silver coins eventually They disappear that because economy. people hoard them. It's, and that's, yeah. yeah. So with this, um, the five laws of gold, uh, this was written in the 1920s. People made much more of an association between gold and money back then because... Well, gold was money. Money was backed by gold, and that's changed. So whenever you hear us say gold as we go through these these five laws, I know it's pretty self-evident, but just consider we're saying money. So the, the first law of gold is gold cometh gladly and in increasing quantity to any man who will put by not less than one-tenth of his earnings to create an estate for his future and that of his family. What say to you on that? Truer words were never spoken, <laughs> right? Uh, and I know uh, later... We mentioned too in this book, it does it repeats different things over and over again. So we're talking about these laws that I think were I don't know in one of the middle chapters. Uh, but he, he uses the same story over. And the other parts I think is where he really talks about a portion of uh, a portion of yours is to keep. Yes. And um, hey, on that whole repetition thing, before I, th I forget about it, I remember reading this again as a as a young guy, and I was like 20 years old, 19 years old, something, and. Literally, his book repeats itself over and over again, yeah. kind of like your parents telling yeah. you, don't do that or do this, right? There's a reason, There's though. There's a reason, right? Yeah. And as a young guy, I didn't get that. Yeah. I think I glossed over some of this stuff. I did, too. Uh, but again, as I've matured and now I'm 57 years old and I'm the grandfather that tells people these yeah. same stories over and over again, repetition has a purpose. And so don't let that distract you when you do these things. And I, forget, I remember early on when I started my podcast, Wellsteading Podcast, One of the criticisms I got from Sony was they said, uh, there's nothing new here. You know, it was nice, nice attempt, but nothing new. That was, that was, that was a comment in iTunes. And uh, I was like, well, yeah, there is nothing new here. That's yeah. the point of the It's show. It's getting people to do it. Well, if, if I had something new about wealth building principles, how could you believe it, right? I mean, wealth yeah. building principles have been around for 10,000 years. 
they're the same old things. You just have to reapply them to new situations. And of all the repetition that's in this book, this is the one that's repeated the most, and it's the one most people are familiar with. And, um, and no one does it. And no one does it, and that's the reason. Like, if you think about when you, if you played football in high school, it, depending on your position, there was one thing that the coach said over and over, you know, ball handling, protect the ball, uh, or, you know, get to the quarterback, or depending on what position, there, over and over, like, yeah, I know that. But that was important. And I think of all the stuff that we'll talk about today, if the average person would just do this, Even if they screw up everything else, they would be infinitely better off. Yep. And, and the bottom line on this is save at least 10%. That's what the book talks about. I personally tell people to save 20%. And I, I, it's probably a modern-day adaptation of that 10%. I think when you look at the amount of your, your wealth that's stolen from the government, I mean, basically yeah. everything you make, 50% of it goes to the government, yeah. one way or another, sales tax, excise tax. Yeah. Property tax. So in the 1950s, you could probably get away with saving 10%. I really think you need to save 20% today okay. just to make up to make up for the difference. And I just and that's just not my opinion. Um, going back to when I first read this book, I was looking at people that were the middle class millionaire, and I yeah. wanted, I wanted to be one, right? And I yeah. didn't know that term back then. It was yeah. another 15 years probably in my life before someone would write a book about that. I'd learn about that. But even as a kid, I remember. People in my neighborhood, you know, Mr. Silverman that owned a grocery store and yeah. uh, Mr. Smith that was an electrician. And I'd see these guys. They just led, led very nice middle-class lives, but they were pretty much all business owners, and they were the quintessential millionaire next door. Well, they, they saved what they earned. They didn't spend it. They didn't live in a, the biggest house and the biggest yep. golf course and drive the biggest car, but they lived very nice lives, and they ended up doing what they wanted to do because they could afford it. And, well, the number one excuse you hear from people when you tell them to do this is, I don't have enough money as it is. And the truth is, those people get raises in excess of 10% all the time, and then that money's immediately gone. So if you could have afforded it before, you, when you get a 10% raise, you don't even feel like much happened. You really don't. It does. So if you get a 10% pay cut, it kind of works the same way if you manage your money properly. And what I loved about that book was the concept of a portion of what you earn is yours to keep. And the response from the student in the book to the teacher that's teaching this lesson is, is not all that I earn mine to keep? And he calls him a fool, right? He says, fool. And that's the exact the first word out of his mouth is fool, And, you know, you have to pay for housing. You have to pay for this. You have to pay for that. You have to pay for food. You have to pay for stuff for your wife. And, and that is not yours to keep. That is what you, that's your, and they didn't use the term in the book, but we would call that in the government, non-discretionary spending. You've got to spend that. And if you don't create some, man, we'll just, we're going to take a on-the-air call here, and I'm going to edit it out. Watch this. Patrick, you're interrupting me. What's going on, man? <laughs> I'm serious. I'm sitting here recording. Pa Pat Patrick, we're in the middle of recording a podcast. Yeah, you're now on the podcast. Awesome. <laughs> so what's well, going on? Auto, so I guess you don't need picked up from the airport. No. So what's up, man? Are you coming in today now? Yeah, I'll be in about 6.30, and I got a bunch of venison with me. Okay, we'll add that to the meat then, and I won't worry about picking up extra steak. Yeah, you don't need to. All right. Thanks. All, All right. right. Drive safe. You too. <laughs> you too. Later. All right, bye. I'm not taking that out either. I'm leaving that in. That That's in. awesome. That is great. What were we saying? Oh, oh, cool, right? And then Patrick called. That's great. Okay, so anyway, 
the, there was these non-discretionary spending things, and if you don't set aside the 10%, it will go away. It right. will disappear. And that's the point I want to make about these guys that are the middle-class millionaire guys. They didn't get there because of luck or because uh, they were made more money than anybody else or anything. They got there because they saved that 10% or, I guess, again, in today's terms, 20%. And, when I again, I, this isn't just a number I'm making up. When I look at my clients and I look at people that I know that are – you know, have become the middle class millionaire, people that have become uh, financially independent before they're, you know, retiring in their 50s, these guys are saving 20%. Yeah. For people that have a really good, reliable pension, you can get away with 10%. Yeah. So if, you, if you're working for the government and you're squirreling away your money and you got a great government pension, yeah, you can probably just save 10%. But if, if you don't have that pension, you got to be putting away 20%. And in this law, before we move on to the next one, we have save before you start thinking about investing because you can't take advantage of opportunity unless you have the resources. And what this makes me think of, how many people you met in your life said, man, I wish I could go back to 1995 and I would have known about the dot-com boom. And it's like, you wouldn't have made a dad go. You, did you have any money in 1985? Yeah, the dollar, the, the dollar that you would have bought pets.com with. Yeah, right. I mean, it would have been worth 10 bucks, right? Like a tenfold return. And, that's why you have to, like, everybody wants to know, what should I invest? I get that all the time. I know you probably get it more because that's your, that's your wheelhouse. You know, what should I invest in? Well, how much money do you have? $5,000. Save money. Right. Don't even worry about what to invest in when you have five grand. Your return is so small, even if you do well. A 10% return annually is a great return when you're conservative. Um, so 10% on $5,000. I know math isn't your strong suit, John, but how much is that? $500. $500. Bucks. So, How quick could that person make $500 by taking, we were talking last night, take a job bartending? I know bartenders would make $500 a week. In a weekend, yeah. Yeah, in a weekend. They only work Saturdays and Sundays, and they make $500, but yeah. Friday night and Saturday night. And, and the other side of that, too, is how, how, what would you have to do, do to have not spent $500? I mean, it's yes. you can earn it or you can save it. Or both. Or both. And right. both works better, but it's still easier than getting that 10% return on your $5,000 to begin with. I have an episode on one of my early podcasts, and I say something like, um, I don't, you can't buy a good BMW for $1,000. Correct. Okay, and everybody knows that. So no yeah. one no one's ever asked me, John, where can I get a BMW for $1,000? A, yeah. good, a good one. Yeah. Because you can't. But, but everybody asks me, where can I invest $1,000? Where's a good place to invest $1,000? Nowhere. Nowhere. You, you save it. You save, you save it. it. That's, that's your emergency and fund. On the financial side, financial advisors, I know Jack calls them. Financial liars. Financial liars. Financial advisors will not tell you. Not to invest because that's how they make their money. Sure. If you're putting your money in a nice, safe bank account, a financial advisor is not making any money. Vanguard's not making money. Fidelity's not making, you know, Charles Schwab. No one's making any money. And so the industry is not geared to tell you to save. Correct. Correct. So let's move on to rule number two. Gold laboreth diligently and contentedly for the wise owner who finds for it profitable employment, multiplying even as the flocks of the field. What's that all about? You know, this is where people don't think about money or gold or whatever you want to call it, wealth. I really like talking about wealth because who cares if it's yen or dollars or gold or silver. But the bottom line on all this is is this wealth, this money, it, it is like an organism. It, it, it's alive. It, and, and when we talk about permaculture, one of the things that really uh, I loved about TSP when, when Jack started started first talking about permaculture, was that it had, I had studied science and engineering and things, so I, I knew from a design perspective it all made sense, but it also carried over perfectly to finances. Yeah. Because if you 
If you treat money well, it, it flows to you just like if you treat your tomato plants well yeah. or your elderberry bush or whatever you're yeah. growing. It doesn't yeah. matter. It's, it's, a, it's a live thing. And the reason your wealth and your money is a live thing is because it's an extension of your life. Yeah. Uh, you've heard Jack talk about money as being energy. That's the way I talk about it. Whenever you work, you're, you're putting forth your time and your labor and your efforts, whether it's physical labor or whether it's your mental capacity, to make money. And what you're being reimbursed for is that time that you're spent or that problem that you're solving. And so if you accumulate more of that money, that means at a future date you don't have to work anymore. And that's really what we're all saving up for. Because you know, under that rule, the, the, the first point about it is money likes to work and doesn't complain about being a slave. It works without compensation. Yeah, money is the only children you'll raise that won't want anything back. Right, you, know, you, you, you raise your kids and they pay dividends. It's great having kids and grandkids, but they always want money. When you're getting your money to work for itself, it never wants reimbursement. It is the one and only true slave. It'll work for you when you're sleeping, and that's when people talk about you know having passive income. And you hear a lot of people talk about it, but hardly anybody really puts it together that way. Well, and people don't understand it always involves some sort of monetary infusion. So a classic way that we explain passive income is through an author getting a royalty on the book, right? But that book, so they think of it like, oh, that book's there, it's like printing money. It is, but it didn't get there without money. So even if that author didn't pay out of pocket to produce that book, somebody did, and that author put, you know, with your book, you put three months of your life into writing a book, You had to pay for your own existence for that three months. Nobody didn't like, oh, gee, I see you're writing a book. Let me get you a meal. Right? That's not how that works. Right. So that book represents a financial contribution. And without money, you couldn't have produced it. And now it does. Like if somebody goes out and buys a copy of your book tomorrow, there's a royalty in it for you. I think your publisher takes a pretty big hunk of it. I take a big chunk, but right, there's, there's something back for me. But yeah. it would have never existed had I not made an investment, made an investment to begin with. And And it has to be an investment. If you're young and you don't have any money, well, you're investing more time. Hopefully, if you're older, you've you've saved money up. Yeah. And you have to put less time into it, but you end up putting more money or more capital into it. Correct. That gets back to the whole thing of uh, economics, right? There's there's land, labor, and capital. There's a yeah. Hey, Charlie, chill, man. Somebody's here. Let's go see who it is. We're gonna we're gonna pause. We'll be right back. This is this is live podcasting for real. I think it's Nick Ferguson. The Landmeister. All right, guys, we are back. And speaking of land, the guy that knows how to look at a piece of land and make it productive just showed up. Nick Ferguson. Nick, hey, how you doing, man? <laughs> hey, guys. Hey, it's homecoming week here. It's uh, the Casa de Spirico. Yeah. yeah, and it's raining. It's actually raining really good. And I think that what we've done is we've created such a confluence of TSP people into the area that the universe thinks it's a TSP workshop. And we all know yeah. that if there's a TSP workshop, it's going to rain. And it hasn't rained for three months, and it's raining steady now. Uh, Charlie lost his mind. You guys heard him on the air but until he figured out who it was, because Charlie loves you, dude. Uh, just a little bit. I mean, <laughs> that's okay. Lucy, Lucy loves me. Yeah, Lucy's Lucy's John's new girlfriend. Oh, really? Yeah. Lucy's my girl. Don't tell my dog. Buddy. Yeah, she's. Uh, but we're we're gonna jump back into it, Nick. You know where you yep, you sleep, yep. and you can come hang and contribute if you want to. But I'm, we're gonna I'm roll. All right, man. You know, I'd offer you a beer, but it's it's kind of early, and and I'd want one too. And I gotta go get a haircut today. So, <laughs> all right, John. So what we were saying is, uh, what were you saying? Land. 
Yeah, land, land, labor, and capital, you know, basically are, are – uh, shoot, I don't know what I was saying about that. Anyways, hey, let's go. <laughs> as far as the, the, the slave part of it, the, I think the big point that comes out in the book and that I wanted to make here is that money has no mind of its own, right? And that's why it's a slave. That's why it's the perfect slave. It will work for you, but it doesn't know how to work. You yeah. have to direct it. So, yeah. again, first you need to have that money. You can't invest without money and uh, investing to build a business, to buy stocks, in your career, whatever you're investing in, you have to first have that energy or that money to do it or the time to put into it. But then you have to direct it because yeah. even if you have a lot of money, right, a, a fool and his money are money soon, soon parted, parted, right? right because yeah. even if you have a lot of money, like someone that wins the lottery, they're broke in a couple of years because the money it's has, like has no mind. It's like 75% of lottery winners end up bankrupt. Professional sports, yeah. athletes, yeah. you know. Entertainers, Johnny Depp is broke now, so imagine that. Well, and here's, check this out. This is why you have to look at this. So we're talking about laws. Laws, like I say, they scale up, they scale back, back, and then they have, it's, it's the same, you know, the equal and opposite reaction. So if money is a slave, then money begets slavery. And either the money is the slave, mm-hmm. or the or person that's the not slave. using the money properly becomes the slave of the money, because the money has, the money is not a, a live, it acts like it's alive, but it's not. It has no mind. So it's going to create slavery either for itself or for you. Right. And, and, and so an accountant would say, right, it's either it's either a, a credit or a debit yeah, somewhere, right? Yeah. It's, it's one person's It's binary. A, one it's on or off. One person's asset is the other person's liability. Correct. And I, I think that is one of the big takeaways from there. Yeah. So that, with that book, though, the point that was made in The Richest Man in Babylon, you – Money has no mind of its own. You must find a profitable employment for it. Absolutely. You have to do it. No one else is going to do and it. And that's right. one way to keep yourself from, from going into your treasure trove and spending it. If your money's actively making more money, then you're not going to go. In, in, the, in the story, the guy that finally takes the advice, if you remember, John, what he ends up doing, the guy comes back like a year later and he said, have you been putting aside a tenth of all you, you, you earn? He said, yes. And what have you done with it? And he basically had a big party at the end of the year with it, right? If it's earning your money, you're not going to have a party with it. Eventually, it will provide parties for you. But it's binary. It's on or off. You do one or it does the other. Right. And money multiplies by what we call compounding interest. And again, it doesn't matter if that's interest that you're getting like in a bank account or interest that you're getting because your business that you've created is growing every year. But it, it compounds. That's the magic of compounding. I don't think it's talked about in the book, but I brought up the Law of 72 in Correct. the notes here uh, because that's one of those other books that we read 30 years ago that helped us get where we're at today talked about the Law of 72. And that's one of the really fabulous things that I've learned in my life is because I always want to know how do I double my money. Yeah. And I, can, I know that by either dividing 72 by the number of years that I want to double my money in or the interest rate at which I'll be getting to double my money. And so remember that, the law of 72, it's always something I keep in the back of my mind. When I'm, when I'm evaluating an investment, if I see something that's too good to be true and I think it's a scam, hmm. I apply the law of 72. I yeah. say, gee, this guy's doubling his money every three months. Hmm, he must be getting a whatever, divide it by 72 and come up with like a 23% interest rate. Yeah. You're not going to get 23% every month, every You're just not going to get it sustainably. Months. Right. No. So, so I know that's a scam. And so law of 72 is, is um, a, a great way to think about how your money is going to grow and how it's going to compound. And, and then my, my favorite law out of these laws is actually the third law. Gold clingeth to the protection of the cautious owner who invests it under the advice of men wise in its handling. So gold literally 
or money clings to you if you protect it. And I, it, you almost see that like a parent with children. A parent that is protective of his children, the children will cling to that parent. Yeah, and that's why we just talked about like the person that wins the lottery. They're not protecting their money because they really didn't get it by working for it. Right? Yeah. He's got this windfall. The lottery winner that goes out and buys $10,000 worth of lottery tickets. Yeah, they, they didn't like they didn't earn it, so they're not going to protect it. But if yeah. they had raised that like like it was their child or their pet or whatever, they're going to protect it because they love it. They're going to nurture it, and if you don't protect it and treat it cautiously, wisely, it's going to go away. We're not really talking about debt here. We're talking more about the avoidance of debt. But you know, one of the places I disagree on a tactical stance with Dave Ramsey is the concept of somebody has like twenty five thousand dollars worth of credit card debt. They have a ton of equity in their home. And they can wipe it out at 3% interest and roll it into their mortgage. And not doing that doesn't make a lot of sense. But I know it, it makes no sense with Excel. And I believe in running your life with Excel, right? You know that. But I understand why he says that. Because that person will go right back into debt because they never felt the pain of getting rid of it. Right. And that's back to the money goes where it's treated best. Yeah. And under your logic of paying off something first, yeah. it makes sense because you're getting a better interest rate or yeah. you're paying less on your credit card debt or something. Um, and my, that's, my and, view and that's is, where money's going to flow best because money's fungible. Money doesn't. We're, you and I were just talking about investments a minute yeah. ago. We we're saying, well, hey, if I can take a tax loss here and a and a, and a tax gain, if I take the tax loss in a taxable account yeah. and I take a gain in a Roth account, yeah. which is tax free, well, that's what I want to do. And the money doesn't care. Yeah, the money. Money is fungible. will do what you it's tell it to do. Whatever do. you tell it to do. Um, where where and I, where again, where I agree with Dave Ramsey too is that the debt part is psychological. Yeah. And, And the people that go and get a loan consolidation fund, yeah. where they, they, it makes sense to, to consolidate all your loans and get a lower interest rate yeah. and then focus on paying that off. That makes sense. But the people that do that don't pay it off. See, I believe they, in a they just have an excuse to go. It's yeah. like the federal government. See, I think they just have you, an excuse to borrow more. You need a hybrid. It. If you suffer long enough to feel the pain, and let's say you had $50,000 worth of debt and you pay it down to twenty-five. I kind of got no problem with you killing that last $25,000 with like a, moving it into – if you have the equity and you get down to 3%. And it used to be a tax reduction. It's not anymore for most people. But um, that makes sense because you felt the pain. The people that never feel the pain, they will go right back in. It's like the drug, the drug user not going to rehab. Right. You, you're not going to quit cold turkey. Maybe one in a hundred can. And if you were the one in a hundred, you wouldn't be in the damn debt in the first place, unless it was you know hospital debt or something. I understand that happens. Yeah, we, we do stupid things, right? And I, it's, it's yes. kind of, you know, it's, it's talking about it. You know, remember the, the insurance company uh, commercial used to say people are smart, and the first response that any thinking person had, like, no, they're not. <laughs> People do dumb things, though. I mean, the, the the good news is that there is a redemption in all this, but you ha it starts with you. You yeah. have to make the effort. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the the thing under the, the gold clingeth to the protection of the cautious, emphasize protection and cautious. Yeah. Because that really does have a lot to do with it. And then you, if you are thinking that way, you will not be led into those deals that you were talking about that are too good to be true. I think in the, the, the book at this point, the story was something along the lines of a guy had a camel that was fast or a horse that was the fastest there was, and they would all put their money in, and they, they bring this guy in as a rube, and he's going to bet on this horse that can't lose. And, of course, on the back end, they're actually buddies with the guy with the horse that's going to win the race. So they sucker him to putting all his money in, and he loses – And I think it was another case of he had saved this money, and now he was ready to go invest it. And instead of investing it in a wise way, he did this. And there was another point where he invested with a guy, and the guy was going to go get jewels. 
and bring them back to Babylon, and they would sell them and make the difference. And the guy was like a brick maker or something like that. So they, he cruises off to Egypt or wherever the hell he went, and he comes back with this big bag of jewels, and it ends up being what? Nothing but glass. Glass or something, right? right? And the guy says, you're a fool. You should not take the advice of a brick maker in, in the world of jewelry. And he said, well, do you take the advice of a brick maker? He said, in the world of making bricks? Absolutely. But in the world of jewels, no. And so you won't do those things if you're thinking from a protectionist standpoint of your money. Absolutely. And, you know, again, this the next point I want to make under that was it takes time. Yeah. You have to be patient. And so it's not only a matter of being cautious and protectionist, but it's like not just today. It's yeah. tomorrow and the next day. And yeah. you have to be vigilant just like you would with anything we do, permaculture or something. You're not going to... Just plant a seed and it go walk well, away. Well, compare it to a something. tree, right? Like, so an investment that I, I, I defy anybody to find me a better, safer investment. You go buy a $30 tree and you put it on your property and you water it enough that it doesn't die and you let it do what trees do and grows. And then you sell your house 10 years after that. The added value your home has from that one tree off of a $30 investment and a little bit of water will exceed almost anything else you can do. But you don't run out there every day going, hey, hey, what, what's up, tree? Why aren't you growing? And that's how a lot of people handle their investments. They're like, you know, if you're an investment advisor, you know, you don't want the client that calls you on Wednesday that you talk to on Monday and goes, well, how's my portfolio doing today? Right? Because you're, you're being unreasonable. Like, we don't measure returns in that period of time. Yeah, you know, and just thinking about the gardening side of it, I'm a lousy gardener, by the way. My wife is the one that... Uh It's the great gardener in the family, not me. But I, th three or four years ago, this was three years ago, I planted four grapevines. And now only one of them is still alive. Okay. And it's just now starting to bear fruit. Okay. Okay, but had I not nurtured them and watered them and done all these things, and even though I got, I had a big loss, I lost yeah. three out of four and all that, but I'm, I'm just now getting fruit like three years later. And I'm sure I'm going to end up with like five grapes or something. It's not even. Yeah. You know, it's not, not, But another couple of years, you'll get more grapes than you would have. Than I would have ever imagined. Yeah. Because, because of the compounding interest, right? They're going to compound on that vine. Um, so think of your money like you, like you would your, your vegetable garden. You've got to put work into it. And another bullet point we have under this law is investing versus speculation. Yeah. And to me, that's, that's a huge factor in how I've built my wealth over the years. And it's so important that when I had written my book and I wrote a book about automation, which really it was about investing, but it was kind of cloaked in the, in the guise of yeah. automation. But the whole fourth part of that book, the whole fourth section was called um, about thinking about being in a beat. It was, it was written in such a way to, to tell you to think as an investor, not as a speculator. And I think that's critical in all times, but especially going forward, because any time you have a big technological revolution, whether it's the invention of the railroad or the invention of the Internet or, you know, today with cryptocurrencies, whatever it is, there's going to be a lot of speculation where you, you have you, – because you have no history of the technology, yeah. you can't use normal accounting and, and fundamentals type ways to value it. You just can't because they don't exist. And so it's not wrong to not do it. Because you just can't do it. And so you have to speculate instead of investing. And, and while, when you do that, you run the risk of losing vast sums of your money. So you have to think like an investor, not a speculator, and, and resist the urge to put all your money in these new technologies 
Not that you shouldn't put any of your money in them. You just not should put all of your money. And even the money that portion. goes there, there should be the concept of what is my exit strategy? How do I protect the fundamental underlying investment? In a solid investment, there's I've bought this thing for this amount of money, and I expect a return of it. And if nothing else, the underlying investment is equivalent to the one that I've made. And so there's an intrinsic value there. As we move into a security like a stock, we start to move away from that a little bit. We still have that. You know, when you look at a stock like, and I'm not making any recommendations here, but let's say IBM, short of something catastrophic happening that we probably would see some signs of, there's an intrinsic value to a share in IBM. It does things, it makes things, it produces things. So even though that stock can go down in value, there is some portion thereof, and then we can move up against with it something like a stop loss and say, hey, if this thing retreats to here, this is as much as I'm willing to lose. And then the speculative part is, How much can we earn on it? And if it's a dividend producer, then we have a guaranteed return unless the company loses money. But you have a pretty, you know, when you look 20 years of a company never missing a dividend and paying 2% to 4%, you know that's probably what you're going to end up with. That's an investment. A speculation is if things go wrong, I lose everything. And, and the closer you get to that, the more the world of speculation you're into and the less the world you're investing you're into. So we can go into like an emerging market or a, a technology or something, but we have to have some idea that like this is how I'm going to protect that. And, you know, I'm kind of a fan of chasing investments with what you're willing to lose. So if you went in at an investment, let's say it's a, to be a simple $10,000 and you're not willing to lose more than 10%, $9,000 is where you cut your, your, your stuff and run. If it becomes a $15,000 investment and you don't want to exit now, we're going to move that willingness to lose up against it with, we're going to say maybe I'm only willing to lose 10% at this point, it's $1,500 and I'm going to preserve my profits, if that makes sense. Yeah, and, and I like the example used with, with IBM in particular there because, you know, at one point IBM many, many years ago would have been a speculative investment. Correct. But it survived, right? And yeah. because it survived for now 75 years or whatever it is, it becomes uh, a fairly solid investment. Again, it isn't, we're not telling anybody. We're not, not telling you go buy it. IBM, right. but, you know, it, it's, a, it's a Dow Jones company. It's been around for a long time. It pays a 4% dividend or something. It's, it's not something, you again, you would put all your money in, but you would feel comfortable putting more money in that than in a new startup that's going to use, say, some kind of blockchain technology. Yeah. Now, that blockchain technology may make you rich, though. It I, might. IBM is not going to make you rich. Yeah. But IBM is that cautious part of your investment where you're protecting it, and, and it's a part of your portfolio that you can count on to generate the money so that you can take risk yeah. and buy the blockchain technology. Yeah. And someday the blockchain technology will become the dividend-paying, yeah, you know, investment yeah. in the future. But there will be a thousand of them. Yeah, there's going to be a thousand. And one's going to cross that finish line. So you could be right about the technology, but completely wrong about the horse. In every horse race, let's say a dozen horses out there. Well, one of them's going to win and make somebody money, but eleven of them are going to lose. Yeah. And I think we're in a world where we're going to see more of that with emerging technologies. There's so many people going into them. Uh, so you say on all of this. Seek out wise men and mentors, and I like what you have here. Take an old guy to lunch. Take an old guy to lunch, yeah. And that, and we'll get a little bit more into getting that advice from people. But the whole thing about being cautious, um, and and being an owner, you know, being an owner of what you do is how do you do that? Well, you look at somebody that already was cautious and was an owner, and that's some kind of a mentor. And I say take an old guy it could be an old gal too, yeah. right? We're not we're not being sexist here, but the the best way for young people to learn how to do anything, to start a business, to make 
to make money to uh, have a hobby. Yeah. Just go find someone that's already successful in doing that. Yeah. And so if you go find an old person that's successful in your area, and, and it's not like you, you know, there's 200,000 listeners to this podcast. They all yeah. can't come and talk to Jack. No. Right? I mean, we we have a great forum here. We get to communicate and all, but we, everybody can't just talk to Jack. But there's a Jack in your area, right? There's yeah. somebody that knows something that you want to do in your area, and if you have them take you on as a mentor, you'll you'll learn much more than taking a college class or some formal education. Just choose your mentors with care. You know, like I, I've told this story before, but I had this this great uncle Stefan, and he was great with money. He was the blue collar millionaire. He was the the millionaire next door before there was a term for it. But he had been divorced three times. And that's actually a testament to how good he was with money that after three divorces in a state like Pennsylvania that's all about the alimony pony, right, he was still well off financially. So my father used him as an example with me and said, if Uncle Stefan tells you something about money, listen to him. If he gives you advice with women, don't. And basically you're looking for advice from people that in the area you're asking for advice, they're better than you at it. And you and I think one of the places people get in the most trouble is taking advice from people in areas that those people know nothing about. We're back to the brick guy going to get the jewelry. Right. You know, I I, uh, I don't ask my mechanic no. about, about my heart condition or something, right? I, yeah. And I don't ask my cardiologist how to fix my car. Yeah. And people don't get that. They they look at someone. It's kind of like a, a hero worship. They look at someone. And they say this guy is a brilliant doctor or something. So he must know about. Cryptocurrency. Yeah, well, he doesn't. He doesn't. He, he no, may. He, he may. He probably, but he probably does doesn't. Not. Right. On the other hand, someone that knows a lot about a small business may not know anything about cardiology. In, in, in cardiology, or even investing in blue chip dividend yeah. paying stocks, because yeah. he doesn't do that. He he does a small business. But he knows how to run a business. Yeah. And and that's where you you want to find these experts in your life, and even simple things. I I moved to my current home uh, in Utah from out of state. I, I lived in Georgia, moved to Utah, and I needed a mechanic, right? Because yeah. I am the millionaire next door. I don't drive fancy new cars. You drive I, an Outback. I, I drive an Outback now. Back then I was driving, you know, my family car was a 12-year-old minivan or something. Yeah. So I needed, it needed repairs every now and then. I needed a good mechanic. I was new to the area. I didn't know who to take it to. I eventually found a good mechanic and he was like gold. When you find a good, yeah. good car mechanic, you can trust. And the reason I knew this guy was a good car mechanic was when I took my car to him uh, and I, you know, you take a car and you know, it's going to cost you 200, 300, 500 bucks, a thousand dollars. It's never, you're never yeah. going to get out of there with a, a minor bill. But I went in there and he came on and said something like, uh, it was just a loose bolt. I tightened it. You don't, you don't know. Me anything. Nothing. I'm like, what? Yeah. You know, he could, he could have charged me 700 bucks. I'd have paid it. I, and he certainly could have charged you fifty bucks because even, you took up his time. Yeah, you would have even been, even if he said all I did was tighten a bolt. I'd have paid him. Yeah, you wouldn't. Have, I'd, you I'd, still would have went back to him. Right, right. And, and again, he could have ripped me off totally, and yeah. I'd never known, which yeah. is what would happen if I'd gone to some franchise place. Yeah. Uh, but you know, because I went to a local mechanic that someone had told me it was good, and uh, so you know what? I've been there for eight years. I take my car to him for everything, even if I overpay for an oil change or something. Why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't I? Right? Because I yeah. know this guy is going, and he's done that time and time again when. I'll, Something will go wrong with my air conditioning, and I'll Google, and it's like, oh, it's a $3,000 repair. I'm like, well, I'm getting rid of that car because uh, it's not, not worth putting the money into. But I take it to this guy, and he's like, oh, it was a relay switch. It was seven, yeah. It was you know, 75 bucks or something. And that's what you want to do. You want to find an expert in all these different areas of your life. Who's helping you with your money? Who's helping you with your business? Who's helping you with your health care? 
The people are out there. Make sure you don't yeah. take advice from your brother-in-law. That's what yeah. I tell people. Don't take advice from your brother. -in -law. And I love this. You have ignore ideology or imperfections and avoid hero worship. So a perfect example is you're talking about mechanics. I don't want to say the name of the company because they may not suck everywhere. But there's a company here that uses a religious invocation that's a franchise auto repair shop. You will not get ripped off worse anywhere else. They're that bad. So if you think, well, because we share this common ideology, they're going to treat me square. Like, I'm not saying they won't. I'm just saying, like, you need to judge them otherwise. And then hero worship is extremely dangerous. It's par personally why I am not big on mentoring people because I have a personality that's online. And I, I, I think a good student listens to a mentor, takes measured responses to that mentor, but doesn't think, Oh, gee, just because it's him, I'm going to go do this. And beyond that, when you have hero worship for someone, you can take what they say completely out of context. So I say 5% of your wealth in silver and gold. And I have to clarify, like, that does not mean if you have $200,000 right now to go out and immediately buy 5% of $200,000 in silver. That means that's that is my general idea. And... When a person doesn't have that hero worship thing going on, they kind of know that. They But when they do, they just and they're also like really subject to confirmation bias. So you got to guard against that as you're seeking mentors and advice. Like I just want to believe that this is going to you know go to the moon. So since he said it might, it really means that it is. Yeah, and you can also use the. You can use that hero worship to cover your own mistakes, right? Well, you know, but, it was but his fault. Jack said, you know, yeah, Jack, Jack said, said do that, right? No, yeah. no, Jack said use your brain. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, the one good thing about being in audio is there's always like, well, go back and show me where I said this, and usually that doesn't yeah. happen. But hey, the other thing on that too is the ideology part, and uh, I've seen this more and more as I've gotten older. You know, people really get stuck on whatever, you know, yeah. because they're this way. They And it makes sense. You obviously want to do business and things with people that are in your group. But, you know, my mechanic, I, I don't know what church he goes to. Yeah. I don't know who he don't voted for. I don't care. I don't know who he voted for in politics. Don't care. I, 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 don't, even, I don't even care if he beats his wife, to be honest with you, right? Because so <laughs> the, <laughs> the guy takes care of my car. Yeah, I right? got you. I mean, I that's what I pay him for. Yeah. Whatever he else he does yeah. is none of my business. Yeah. You know, it's like a libertarian mentality. <laughs> He I, takes care of my car. I, I like what Curtis Stone says about ideology. He says, take your ideology, put it in your back pocket. right? And that doesn't mean it's gone. It doesn't mean it's not important to you. Most people keep their wallet in their back pocket. It's important. But it's also out of the way at that point. And so it's there. It's part of you. But you don't make poor decisions based on it. And you don't – I think one of the, the – the, the really is the negative thing you're talking about there. Well, you know, um, let's say you need a lawyer. And, well, this is my brother Bob's best friend from college, and he'll take it and give me a discount. That's not how you pick a lawyer, especially when his area is like, let's say, family law, and you need a lawyer for uh, tax strategy. Like, you go find the lawyer that's good at tax strategy. And, again, like, you know, you might be a Christian. I don't care if the guy is a Hindu. I don't care if he is a – I don't care if he's a Satanist. Right? What if, if he's really good at what he does, that's the guy I want handling that one thing in my life. I don't know that I would say I don't care if he beats his wife, but you know, if I don't know about it, I don't care. I don't care. That's kind of the whole point of, of with all that stuff is if the guy, if I went to get my car repaired from him and he's trying to push me on yeah. his religion or on his Uh, his politics or something, that's a different story. But yeah. if the guy's just fixing my car, it's none of and my business what he do does. Yeah, 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 right? yeah. I don't care. I just, I just want that. And uh, we, you know, we live in a world where everything's politicized, so you can't 
people don't see it that way, but that's the way I see it. And then this whole concept of being protective and cautious of your wealth fits right in with my slogan of if times get tough or even if they don't. Right, which is what I, which was what drew me into the TSP. Uh, made you part of the cult? Made, made me part of the hero worship cult of, of Jack Spirico. <laughs> Because so many people, particularly in the genre of survivalism or preparedness, are always focused on the tough times. Yeah. But your little moniker of, you know, and even if they don't, yeah. is, is the way our lives are hopefully 80 or 90% of the time. Hopefully nothing bad is going on. And you got to plan for the prosperity, not just – you talk about the exit strategy. Yeah. You want to have a prosperity exit strategy, not only a stop loss. You want to know when to get out on the top. Well, and I'll tell you, as a, as a marketing professional before I came into this world who would strive with my branding clients to try to brand them if I could do it with a single word. For instance, with Franklin Spirico Media, our entire branding was around the word create. Create, period. Full stop. And, and it, it's a challenge to do that. To come up with a slogan that's basically a clunky run-on sentence was very difficult for me to accept. But when I thought about it, it was, that is the thing. And, 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 and when you get to something that is the thing, that's good investment advice as well. Like, when you know it's right, you know it's right, and you go with it. Um, but, yeah, I mean, that's... You, you got to plan, like as you say, for prosperity and for failure, and think about the things that are in the area that you control and influence. Yeah, that, that planning's got to be on what you can do things about. We, yeah. we can't worry about things that that uh, are out of our control because you're wasting your time. Jack talks about that a lot. Um, you know, one of the things that's in your control is, is something as simple as term life insurance. Yeah. You know, people uh, when we talk about these rules rules of gold, that he didn't just talk about for yourself. He says for your an family, estate for your family, yeah, planning an estate for your family. So if you're a young person, whether you're a man or woman, and you're working, you have dependents, those people are are preparing, or they're 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 planning on you being there to uh, to uh, help them. Yeah. If you're not, you need to have some kind of life insurance in place to take care of them. Should you not be able to earn an income, but but that is also not one of those kind of things where. Uh, when those when the, when you no longer have dependents, you don't need the life insurance anymore. Yeah. Yeah. You know, when you get to a point in your life where your kids are grown, your house is paid for, you have no debts, then I think whole life money. is one of the worst things ever, 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 period. I know someone's going to email me. Don't bother. I've heard every re response to this that there is. And you can talk about borrowing money for yourself and whatever. And in the end, what you always hear when you push somebody that's a whole life advocate, if it's not from pure ignorance, then it's, well, people don't have the discipline. Right, so well, let's fix the discipline problem. Let's not go into a stupid investment because we lack discipline. Yep. Like there's other ways to apply discipline to your investments other than tying it up in a a, a terrible, absolutely horrible infinity investment. You heard it from me. We'll move on. But. We will. And, and in <laughs> fact, the, the, one of these Fridays, I guarantee you're going to hear an expert counsel oh, answer yeah. about something about snake oil. Yeah. Life insurance from someone on the expert council. Yeah, I can almost yeah. bet you're going to hear that. Yeah, it's probably going to be from you. That might be. <laughs> so the next law, gold slippeth away from the man who invests it in a business or purposes with which he is not familiar or which are not approved by those skilled in its keep. We kind of were talking about that already. That's why these laws all flow together. Yeah, they flow together. And, you know, my response to that whole thing is, We've heard uh, we've heard people say you can't fix stupid. Yeah. Um, well, you know, you, my my and my thought on that is particularly finances. You got to fix stupid before you can fix broke. I agree with that. And P 
people uh, people want to believe in in the reason scams work is because people want to believe in them. They yeah. want to believe they can get rich quick. Yeah. Um, when you hear somebody else falling for it, you think it's stupid. You're like, how could that ever happen? But then you don't realize all the times that you let it happen to you. And just go into your junk folder and your email thing and look at all the scams people are constantly saying you want to on a daily basis. If somebody falls for it or they would stop doing it. That's right. Someone has fallen for that Nigerian scam, right? They wouldn't have done it. And I'm I'm amazed. When I go through my junk mail or my uh, my spam folder or whatever and, and see that stuff, I'm just... And some of it's pretty good though, yeah. you know, and it, and it would get you if you're in a particular thing where you know you're looking for a job. Yeah, so yeah, that yeah. They they, they hit work you up from with home. This. Warren work Buffett wants home. to hire you, or Google yeah, or is even, hiring people. Or even people. you know we've we've got this uh, we've got this position for you in reference to your resume and stuff. Well, I, I don't send out resumes. So yeah, so I, I know, know that's so I know bull. it's bullshit, right? But someone that sent one out may like especially if they may, sent it out yesterday. Gullible. Yeah, yeah. And they're desperate for a job, desperate. and now somebody's immediately responded to their resume. Right. Which, and so what immediately to me is is obviously a, a scam. Yeah. Someone else that's more vulnerable and they did just send out the resume, they're not gonna they're not gonna cognitively think about that. They're gonna say, Oh wow, this is this is maybe what I'm looking for. And then they get lulled in. Well and I think we need to separate the concept of stupidity from stupid behavior. Smart people do stupid things. And and the problem with advice when you say, you know, basically don't be stupid, well, the person thinks, well, I'm not stupid. It doesn't mean you can't do stupid things. We've all done stupid things, right? A lot of us have scars to prove that we did stupid things. Sometimes they're financial scars, and sometimes they're, I guarantee you, if we start trading stories, we got some scars. <laughs> that we, oh, yeah, you got a good one there. That's a Jack, you, you know me as a clean-cut young man. Yeah. You know, I got my first tattoo when I was 16. Can you see the scar? Yeah, I can. Yeah, can you see the one I got when I was 18? That's that's what those are from. <laughs> those are, those are, those are old, from old, old tattoos. Yeah, I, was, I got uh, different scars, but there's some of them are stupid scars. Oh, I got one on my knee that involves being upside down in a car for 200 feet, right? And that, I wasn't the one driving, but I was the dummy that got in the car with somebody that I knew was stupid, right? And he for him, it wasn't just stupid behavior. It was stupidity. And therefore, my behavior was stupid because you don't trust stupid people. Well, you do trust stupid people to do stupid things, because right? Because you can rely on them to be <laughs> stupid, right? And, and, that, and that's, you know, because that gets to this whole thing about the, the, it's a fourth law, though, is that we know these things are going to happen and so that we know they're reliable. Yeah. And we also know we're going to do stupid things. The law is, though, what? The gold slippeth away. Yeah. It doesn't mean it ruins your life necessarily. It doesn't mean it's over. It, it means it's, just it, gone. It's, a, it's a loss. You don't have to fix it. And, and you can learn from that. Yeah. Right? That's yeah. the beauty of getting an education. You you pay your stupid tax. You you, you, you learn <laughs> you learn from your mistakes. And yeah. hopefully, as you get older and more mature each year, you make less and less stupid mistakes. Yeah. I, I agree 100% with that. So... Uh, Again, kind of going back to what we were talking about earlier, don't take advice from the stupid or the broke, especially as it relates to money and procedure, right? I mean, like, that's the guy that's broke. You know, you ever notice the most broke people always want to tell you how to manage your money? Like, well, what you should do is this or that or, you know, I know this guy and he said that. Listen, when any piece of advice starts out with, I know this guy and he said, just stop, yeah. right? I mean, that's just not the place to get advice from. And to even take it out of the... The financial concept here, many of us are veterans served in the military. Whenever you hear, you're at a bar and you hear somebody start talking about their combat service. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And how they were a hero. It's almost immediately. What, what they did under fire and all yeah. this. You know that guy was never in combat. No. Right? He probably wasn't even in the military. He probably wasn't even in the military. And yeah. 
that it's that way in life. Whenever yeah. people start talking about these things, you can almost be sure that they are blowing smoke. They yeah. have no idea what they're talking the about. The guy that's in the bar that's talking about his, his special forces stuff, you're always like, yeah, well, who are you with? Uh, seventh group. You do know they have other groups. Right, you know, like it's always it's always that it's always seventh group, and it's like they were Navy SEAL. Yeah, 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 they were Navy SEAL. They were a Navy SEAL after they were in Special Forces, right? It's like, where do you come up with this? And does anybody actually buy any of your bullshit? And the guys that actually did that stuff, they never talk they about. Don't it. talk about it. We we, yeah. we we were talking last night about you and I both yeah. spent summers as kids in VFW clubs, which yeah. is which is a bar, a Veterans of yeah. Foreign War bar back in yeah. the coal mines. Uh, that's where Jack and I spent some of our formative years with our grandfathers. Uh, and and you know that's really where I learned to gauge people's personality and yeah. learn about human nature. Uh, but and I'll tell you what, I remember those days. I I knew people. Back then, coming back from the Vietnam War, people that had served in Korea, people that had served in World War One and World War Two, yeah, they, and the guys that were really the real veterans, they didn't talk about it. I mean, no. the guys that were hitting Normandy Beach and stuff, the only time they talked about it, they they were crying. Yeah, and they talked about. Yeah, it. they were talking about it because it was a certain day. Maybe it was a day they lost somebody, or, or, a day or they, they were comforting. Yeah, you know, yeah. I so saw they, older guys yeah. from World War comforting II Vietnam. comforting Vietnam vets. Yeah, and and those in their in the corner crying together. Yeah, they were not not out standing up on the bar about telling about how brave they were. And it's I think that is what makes it easier for guys like you and I to judge the behavior because and I think this is like outside of this, but if you have kids, put them around adults that you want them to be like. Like that is like that's an investment in your family. Uh, a buddy of mine, his thing is he sends his son to go be with people for a day or two or even a week while they're working to see how a grown man behaves in his place of work. And don't put your kids around people like we're talking about here on the other side of it because you become more like the people you're surrounding yourself with. And your kids are not immune to that either. They become that as well. Yeah, that's, and that's the best advice I can give anybody is you just avoid people that are, suck. Yeah, just, <laughs> you stay away from bad people, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. if your suck factor is higher than one, I'm, I'm out, you know. If you stay away from certain bad elements of town, right, at, yeah. at night and avoid certain kinds of behavior, yeah. you're, you're likely not what, to be involved in, in an accident. Or what something. does Frank Sharp Jr. say from Fortress Self-Defense? Don't do stupid things in stupid places with stupid people. And 90% of the time, you won't need to worry about defending yourself. You don't yourself. have to worry about anything. Yeah. So um, next, we have gold flees the man who would force it to impossible earnings who are, or who follow with the alluring advice of tricksters and schemers or who trusts it to his own inexperience and romantic desires of investment. Like, I think on that, for me, the guy that I know is going to lose his money is the one that's talking about how he's going to spend the return before the investment has had time to do anything. Like, when this happens, I'm going to go buy a house. Yeah. No, you're not. And that's that's how they pull you into it, right? That, yeah. Those romantic desires, yeah. right? That you 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 want this house, or you want this boat. Well, well I want you, you to, to come it. over yeah. to my house, John, and we're going to tell you about how this thing about this works, opportunity. right? And I'll tell two people, and you tell two people, and and let me show you this pyramid, and you're going to get rich. All I need is a check from you for six hundred dollars tonight, right? That's and it could go up to you know huge fraud, but it all really works the same way. It all works that same that same confidence man kind of thing, and. You see it over and over again, and, and you know. Just recently, there was a Theranos. I don't know if you followed that company. That's that's the one where the 
the young woman dropped out of Stanford and she kind of wants to be like a uh, oh yeah she's like a, a Steve Jobs she wants to be, be she wears Elon the, Musk she Steve wears Jobs. the black the black turtleneck yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and the, wears the earpiece and all that stuff just like she had a great line going for about a decade and they you know they just can it, it's been rumored right down been, to hacking her own devices to to to, to fudge f- the results fudge the results fake FDA approval on their blood testing and the things that they devised and they had a great The concept, idea, though. if it would have worked, it would have been great. It, the whole concept was right, and, and it's been rumored for years that something was wrong with it. It's just been the yeah. last six months or so that they finally have, have yeah. shut it down. But 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 it was clearly, and she was a woman too. She was a woman in Silicon Valley, so people wanted to believe. Yeah, yeah, they yeah. Want, you know, this is a really the first woman that's going to come out with a, a billion dollar company. Yeah. And, and her board of direct, and this this to me, why well, I knew it was a scam a while back was when you looked at her board of directors, um, they were all crony capitalists. Ah. Um, they were uh, Henry Kissinger, what? Um, Sam <laughs> Sam Sam Nunn, right of Georgia, senator from Sam George Sam Nunn. Uh, wow. Um, um, not Dick Cheney, but one of those other guys. Somebody uh, from the from, from the Reag, from the Reagan years, way okay. way back. Uh, I mean, real prominent. Yeah. And I, his name escapes me now. He, I think he was Secretary of State under under. Uh, I know you mean under Reagan. Yeah. So I mean, real. It wasn't like and normally you do right. You you you. We're we're in a crony capitalist fascist government so you put a prominent democrat you put a prominent republican on there and yeah. then the other nine members are yeah experts in the industry or whatever. Yeah, yeah but her entire board they're all that they were all that they were all some kind of political insider weird thing and and they raised lots of money and and those guys weren't crooked i mean they believed it too they, yeah. they were in you know but that's how that was the confidence of it. look at our board of directors yeah, yeah look yeah. at this young woman and her brilliant idea And it was all yeah, guys it was, the CFR and whatnot. It, it yeah. was a scam. It the whole was, thing was the a scam. The whole thing from day one was a scam. And but people fell for it. And Because what you have here is the reality is lots of people are trying to screw you. People are trying to screw you. One one of the most valuable pieces of advice I got was when I was a young kid, I was working for a guy. Um, uh, he was he was an old Jewish guy I was working for and You know, I was as a young kid. I was smart enough too to look look at these mentors, and this guy taught me many many things. But one of the things he always said was, you know, open up your wallet. And open my wallet, and he, yeah. me, he says, "You got money in there. Everybody's yeah. trying to take your money out of your wallet and put it into theirs." So I think there was, was a people, simple that simple yeah. lesson, but he's true, and, and that doesn't mean everybody's trying to rip you off. But everybody would but like your money. Everybody wants your money, and there's a lot more people that are looking for the easy way out to steal from you than people that are looking for the honest way to give you value for value. Well, see, and the, I think the, the 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 good and the bad is that most people, I do believe, are in general honest, right? They generally want to do well and and do good by other people. However. That same honest person put into the wrong position will then become dishonest. And even if only, let's say, one in ten, and I think it's higher than that, but one in ten are is, is my, that's kind of my scumbag theory, that like 10% of people are just scumbags. Look around. That's a lot of scumbags. The, the, right? bad, the bad apples. Right, the, the, the bad, bad apples. The like, bad apples. Yeah. Uh, so, but even an honest person can do dishonest things in the right circumstances. So back when I was a... When I when I joined the military, we had a delayed entry program. I think you're too old for that, but like it was basically where you went out and hung out with a bunch of kids that were going to go into the the that, army, right? That's what I did. Yeah, I joined when I was 17, and I went yeah. in at graduation when I was 18. So we we, we played paintball was one of the things we did. So we're playing. We'd play different paintball games, and this is back when you know the old paintball before you could fire like a million paintballs. You had, everybody had the same stupid one cock and then one shot and one cock, and, and we did a game called poker. So everybody drew a card from a deck. And then you go out and shoot people, and when you shoot people, you take their card. And whoever had the best hand at the end of the time limit 
won the game. So I see this dude, and I see he's got an ace, and I've got an ace. I don't let anybody see my ace. And I said, why don't we, why don't we team up until the end, and we'll, we'll, we'll both time it, and on the last five minutes we'll split up, and then we'll, you know, we'll, and that way we can, we can do more together. So the guy says, okay, so you go out and you wait in your spot, and then they blow an air horn, and you, you know, it's on. So what do you think I did the minute the air horn blew? I shot him. I shot him right in the ass, right? You know, he's like, that's not fair. I'm like, well, you did understand how the game works, right? I mean, and so I'm one of the more honest people you'll ever meet, and I still shot him in the ass with a paintball gun. And I, I figured I was being nice because this place would hurt the least, right? Like I didn't hit him, because you know if you get hit in the knuckles, it really hurts. But I still took his card because he had something of value I wanted. And so always remember when you think somebody won't screw you over, Jack Spirico might have shot you for an ace. But, you know, and the other part of it too is even though the, the vast majority of people are honest, The, the con men and these, these charlatans, they're going to use those other influencers to influence you. Correct. And so they will, they will trick someone that has a good reputation into alluring other people into this bad investment. Yeah. Because they, because they, because they believe the credibility of the good person and everybody get, ends up getting scammed that way. So, and I don't think this lady you're talking about wanted to scam people in the beginning. She wanted to develop this thing. But the deeper she got, and the more real the, fail the failures got, the more she was stuck in it, and the more she had to do dishonestly to try to buy. And I think, the, at least initially, the thought was, we'll buy time, and we'll get it right. right. We'll buy time, and we'll get it right. And, and that's where Bernie Madoff started. Right? And once you have enough lies, then you're at risk of going to jail. Now you're stuck in that, that sea of lies. And But Bernie Madoff's brokerage company was legit. Okay. It, it, he, he handled, he was a moneymaker, uh At one time, I think he was president of, uh, I, don't, I don't think it was New York Stock Exchange, but one of the I mean, he was a legit guy. Yeah. On his investment side, though, when he merged the two and he started having some losses, I'm sure in his mind, he said, well, I'll just, I'll cover I'll this, just loss cover with this that. over. And, and, and no, it won't hurt anyone yeah. because I'll, I'll make, make it back. I'll make it back. I'll make yeah. it whole. And that maybe worked the first time and then it didn't. And then, yeah. but he ended up being a crook for 25 years. Yeah. And, and it, when it blew up, Then everything went. Everything went, and there was nothing he could do. So, yeah, I don't think he necessarily started out to defraud people, but when you go down that path, right, you, you know. And it kind of summing this whole thing up, two points from you on the outline here. You're not that smart, so diversify because you're going to have failures. Yeah, and that's that's the reason people fall for these get-rich-quick things is they, they, they want to believe that they're that smart. They want to believe that they're going to get this 20% return overnight or it's going to, you know, Whatever they're going to sell, they're going to get in some multi-level marketing thing, and they're going to get a downline and become a billionaire overnight. Yeah, they want to believe that, but they're not. They're not that smart. It's not going to work for them. Be skeptical, and then and do diversify. And again, it gets back to that the redemption the redemption side of it is that yeah, you're going to make mistakes, you're going to violate these laws, but you can fix it as long as you are diversified and don't put all your eggs in one basket. You can recover from a loss and move on and grow from it. Um, believe me, I've I've had many failures in life. Absolutely, and it's, and it's those failures, as much as my successes, that have ha allowed me to go on and make better decisions in the future. And when you feel like you know I've kind of been here before and it hurt last time, either don't do it or at least do it differently. Do it differently, right? Because so many people, you know, they, the old thing about you know the, doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result is the definition of insanity. But yet there must be a lot of crazy people out there because I see that more than anything else. Well, that's human nature, right? Yes. Yeah. Well, I've always done that. Don't want to change. Yeah. Yeah. You know, when you know a business is going to fail, when, you, when you're when you talking to a business owner, especially a small business owner, kind of a one-man show or something like that, 
And they use phrases like, well, when things pick up. Which means they've already made a decision that they're not going to do anything differently than they're doing right now. And they're going to wait for the market to change. They're going to wait for the situation to change. And it's like, there's a reason you're failing. And if you won't change what you're doing, you're going to continue to fail. Yeah. It's an instant, like, when I talk to somebody that says that about their business, I know I might sound like a dick here, but I'm honestly done. I'm done. I'm not saying another word. I'm bye. My time is too valuable to waste it because I know I can't help you. And that's what we just talked about in the, the fourth law about yeah. avoid those people, right? Yeah. You can't fix them. I can't and, fix and that. And you can't solve all you these problems. You haven't hurt yourself bad enough to believe that you need it. It's a drug user that's like, I can quit anytime I want. Well, when, when, when you crash, call me and I'll get you into rehab. But until then, I, there's no reason for me to say anything, do anything, try anything. I can't because you're not going to listen to me. So, and that's good advice with kids, too. Obviously, when you're raising your kids, you don't want them to hurt themselves. You have yeah, to protect yeah. them, but you got to let your kids There's make, a their, point. make their own mistakes. And that's how they're going to learn. They're going to, they're, I, you know, I look at, I say, you know, some, I'll get impatient with my kids or something sometimes. I say, don't you know, blah, blah, blah. No, they don't. Yeah. I know that because I'm yeah. 50 some years old. <clears throat> they're 10 or 15 or 20 or whatever. They have not learned that maturity. Well, I think that like everything that we think is complex is dramatically simple and can generally de be defined with an absolute de definition in one sentence. So if you said, like, what is parenting? Most people would say, well, that is way too complicated to define with a single sentence. There's a single sentence for it. Working yourself out of a job. That is the entire definition of parenting. If you're not doing it that way, you're doing it wrong. And if you are doing it that way, you're doing it right. And and that's that's how you need to look at when you have mentors. They need to be working themselves out of a job, right? So you're not a good student to your mentor if you're not going into it with that mindset, I'm going to take what they have and I'm going to go use it to the point where I, I no longer need them. So frankly, I can clear the hell out of the way so they can help somebody else. Yeah, and that's, and that's really when... It kind of convoluted, but when you think about seeking out a mentor, you're looking for the mentor. The mentor is not looking for you. Correct. Because right? you don't want to. You don't want to be. No, no, you don't, you no. don't want Yoda. You don't want Yoda that's going to live for four thousand years. It's never going to let you be the master. Yeah. Right. You. Yeah. You want this yeah. guy to teach you what he knows, and then you go on and you become the next master. And a mentor looking for for those to mentor generally is one of the people we've been talking about. They're they're con <laughs> artists. The guy right? bragging about the guy that starts showing you his watch and all that other crap. Like, and I even had it. I had an email recently from a guy asking me about that. I think I actually covered it on the air. Yeah, you did. You did that. Yeah, episode. I was yeah. like, that's icky. That's that's not right. No, no, no. Run, run away fast, right? So moving on from there, like one of the things that really hooked me about this book back when I read it, and I've, I've reread it. And by the way, we'll have a link in the show notes. This entire book is available in audio on YouTube for free, and it's a very well done professional narration. And I actually have on my server because I wanted my son to listen to it. And like a five-hour YouTube video can be monotonous with trying to get back to where you were and what have you. So I broke it down into one-hour segments, and they're on MP3s on my server, so people can grab it there too. Um, I think it's a good idea to listen to it in your car after you're done listening to the Survival Podcast for the day. But um, the section on work, and that was valuable in the book even to – because this was set in Babylon at its height – even to actual slaves. Slaves were able to work themselves out of slavery through work. And what you have down in your first point of your outline is wealth comes from work. And God could our youngest generation use that advice. Yeah, and when I talk about my own personal wealth building principles, I have 10 wealth building principles. One of them is that production is the source of wealth. 
And, you know, that gets back to people that want these get-rich-quick schemes and everything. They don't work. You have to produce. You have to start producing as an income earner. Then you got to save it. Then you got to invest it. But it all comes back to production. If you're investing in a company that doesn't produce anything, whether it's fake or fraud or whatever, there's nothing there. There's no substance. And, and so work is the essence of all that. The reason you work is you're, put, you're putting your productive energies into something. You're creating something of value, a product or a service, and you're exchanging it for money that somebody else wants. If you want to get wealthy, you have to produce. Production is the source of wealth. You know, and what this makes me actually think of, and I, I don't want to sound too down on the people that I grew up around because there's some really great things in my life that I took from the type of people we're talking about, good, solid men that had fought wars, and uh, there was some good community and, and interaction. But I grew up in a place where the Depression came in 1929 and no one knew. And by the end of World War II, the Depression was over and no one knew it was any different. It was a poverty consciousness. But even in this place, there were the millionaire next doors. There were the blue-collar millionaires. And the average person always used words like this to describe them. Greedy, miserly, cheap, stingy, and other negative connotations. Or they just right? got lucky. They got they lucky, got lucky or I went to all they do. I went to school with that guy, right? And he, yeah. he just got lucky. All they do is work. And, you know, as a young person, I didn't really see the folly in that. But by the time I had hit my teens, and especially once I'd gone to the military and come back, I kind of realized, like, well, those are the, actually the people I want to be like. And I never saw those people as stingy. And, you know, what I've done in some of my public speaking is say, this is, this is a bogus attitude. It's the rich guy that always picks up the check at the restaurant. And it, it is, right? So if you're stingy, you don't you get T-Rex when the check comes, right, where you can't quite reach it with your fingers. Or, or it's the rich guy that's making the contribution for the hospital or the church or yeah. the fundraiser or whatever it is. He's the guy that's got the money. And I saw this also with even my wife. Like, So as we started to do better and all, I still have always lived well within my means, but I like to cook, so I'd make a really nice steak. And we'd end up with a piece of steak left over. My wife would take the steak... To work, So her and all the girls from the doctor's office go down to the uh, cafeteria and maybe she'd get something to go with it, but usually nothing. She'd have everything, bring her on lunch. And they'd be out spending, you know, seven, ten bucks a day on lunch for crap cafeteria food. And she said one day she sat there and she took her steak out. And, you know, I have it all perfectly grilled and it's nice and red. And the girl made a comment to the effect of, well, Jack must be doing really good if you're eating like that. Now, that leftover piece of steak, we might have had three or four bucks into it. They were spending twice as much money, to eat, to eat worse but food. they were resenting the people that had the money, and they had no idea, coming back to the principle here, of the work that went into it in the first place. Right, and, and so they were, they were spending twice as much to buy something of inferior quality. Correct. And that's why they're poor. Right? Yeah. My, my grandfather used to say, poor people work hard to be poor. And you know, and he, didn't, he didn't mean like the kind of social justice thing that they work hard. He meant the things they do result in them being poor and you have to get over that and it gets back to when we talked about money flowing where it's treated best and you talked about the, the countries too i mean yeah. you look at venezuela or someplace they're they're poor right now because they're trying to like print money instead of produce goods yeah. and services that people want they're yeah. not they're not being productive they're not yeah. pumping the oil out of their ground that they have they have tons of oil under the ground they're trying to nationalize it they're trying to yeah. uh, you know create money out of thin air when they have the resources they used to be a very wealthy country argentina also used to be a very wealthy country both of them are are destroying themselves now in south america and i think you have to 
tie hard work with effective work. I've used this analogy before, but you need to get a fly in a window. That fly works his ass off trying to get out through that window, and all he's going to get is dead. And I can think of like you know men I grew up with that were coal miners. It wasn't that they didn't work really, really hard, but then if you pulled yourself back, you'd think, well, why are you going to work every day in a coal mine? And you'd start to realize, well, it doesn't really pay that great. They'd say it was a good-paying job. Well, compared to what? Working at the convenience store? But if that same amount of physical labor had been properly applied, or if you'd used the wealth management we started the show off with to save a tenth of all those earnings while you were down in that coal hole, eventually you could find yourself a way to use that money to invest in a small business or something and get out of that. So I don't have problems with working horrible jobs, but they better have a place they're leading you to. When I first moved here to Texas, John, I worked for a company called Home Interiors and Gifts, and I worked in a warehouse for $6 an hour, and I packed boxes for 12 hours a day till my, till my fingers were ble literally bleeding. And I worked harder than anybody around me there, and people actually were annoyed by that. Like, you know, you're making us look bad or whatever. Well, my whole point was I wanted to get any extra dollar I could out of it. And once you got to a certain level, they put you on production. And I wanted to save up money because I was already planning on leaving. They made me an offer to go full-time and gave me a raise. I took it. I don't care, you know. And I wanted to go work for, for MCI. And I had a, a guy that got me my first contracting job. I needed $800 to buy the tools that were required for the job. So making $6 an hour, I needed to save up $800 in addition to paying my bills. And I was willing to do all the work I could for that, but I certainly wasn't planning a career there as a box packer. Or looking at the supervisor that I worked for and realizing, you know, he makes like nine bucks an hour. And this is a while ago. It's still not much money. Um, and that, I think, is a huge thing. And then the other thing, though, even with that, I remember being that guy and thinking, well, he has it easy. So that ties right into your next thing. First learn to work, then learn to have others work for you. What I found is I got promoted throughout my career Every time I got promoted, the job was harder than I thought it was. And you don't have that frame of reference when you're a young person and you think your boss just hasn't made. He doesn't do anything. He, he just yeah, sits in the office. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and the more I got promoted, the harder I worked and the more miserable I became in some situations. Yeah, and the real key there, and even as you started out on that packaging line, you you were the important thing was you were you knew how to work, but you were learning how to work and to acquire new skills. And so you were... You, in effect, were planning your career. Right? Yeah. You were just starting lower than you wanted to be, but yeah. you were planning it. And that's the whole kink thing is you have to learn to work. You have to acquire those skills that people either want to hire you or that you can create products and services that people want to buy. But you start where you're at. You don't say, oh, if I could just get to New York City, I'd become a, yeah. you know, this or that. Or if I get to Hollywood. No, you got to start where you're at. Start building whatever enterprise Get whatever kind of skills you can where you're at, and then use that to leverage to the next position. Absolutely. And I, I do think there's a huge thing. And again, you learn to work, and then you have others work for you. Start with who you know, start with what you are. In the book, there's a story of a baker looking to buy a slave. Tell yeah. us about yeah, that. Yeah. And again, what I like about this book, and it, it's real simple, right? It's set in this you know, cheesy Babylon kind of. Biblical, mythological yeah. stuff it uses goofy words and things, but it tells a story. And, and I think the most important story is is when it talks about slavery. And the key to that is, and in many of the examples in the book is, people buy their own freedom. 
Correct. They start as slaves, as many of us feel we are today, either slaves of debt or slaves of your job or whatever. But the, 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 whole, the whole point is, is that you don't have to remain a slave. And so one of the, one of the stories is, is this baker, he comes in to buy a slave, and he announces to the, to the group, he says, you know, I'm looking to buy a baker. Who's, who's a good baker? And nobody raises their hand. And the, the one guy, the little hero of the story, he does, he approaches the baker, and he doesn't say what I thought he was going to say. I thought he was going to make up a lie yeah. and say, I'm a great baker. Yeah. And he was going to justify, hey, I got the job by lying, but it yeah. was okay. I worked hard and made yeah. up for it, and that's okay. I, I get that. But that's not what happened. In the story, the guy says, the, 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 uh, the slave says, well, why would you want to hire a baker, an inferior baker? You're like the greatest baker. Why wouldn't you want to take someone like me that's a blank slate, someone that doesn't know anything about it, but willing to learn, and you can teach me everything you know, and then I'll be a great baker like you. And and to me, that is really a key principle and probably something I've had in the back of my mind because I read this book 30-some years yeah. ago and just forgot it came from that book. But I've always gotten my jobs and moved on and advanced, and not because I necessarily was able to do the next job that I took, but because I was able to position myself as someone that was willing to come in and learn and do the things that were required. And for people that can go out and find, you know, someone that's willing to train you, and that's that's the appeal you want to make. Hey, I don't have the experience. I don't have the education, but I'm willing to learn from you, and you're the best at it. So if you train me, I'll make you profitable. And the flip side of that is if you're a business owner, that's what you want to be looking for. You want to look for these guys that you can train to be better than you. And maybe they will start up and be competition against you someday. Yeah. But that's okay. While they're with you, they're going to make you more money than any old hourly wage earner you're going to pay is going to. Those are the people that are going to make you the money. Well, and buying your freedom, like I think some people think, well, like it's well, buy your freedom from debt. Yeah, you can do that, but it's not just that's not the only way people are slaves. So I talked about where I grew up. The majority of people that live there, I look at them, John, and I see slaves. Even if they're not, a lot of them are not in a lot of debt because they can't get any debt. Like no one will give them any money anyway. But they're slaves to their belief in the fact that their situation is unchangeable. I live in a little row house because my, my parents lived in a little row house and their parents lived in a little row house and we're just a, just a poor area and this is where it is and at least I get my EBT card and I get my, my WIC for my kids that I have and I get my Section 8 housing and like I can't change this. One of my favorite movies of all times had uh, Heath Ledger in it. It was called The Knight's Tale. And if you remember that movie, the, the father sends his son off as a scribe to be with a knight. And he tells the kid, a man can change his stars. And, and that's, that's like, a, like a huge metaphor. But reality is you can change your circumstances. And money is the way in which you change your circumstances. Money it's is that energy we talked yeah, about. It's, yeah. it's going gonna, it's gonna to propel you and push you over. And, and I look at it and go, well, gee, if you ran a little online business while you were living in a row house that's like $200 a month for rent, and, and you, can, you can't get ahead there, I, like... How did I get ahead making $6 an hour paying $500 a month for rent? Because it is very cheap to live there. Like, what is the advantage that you have by the situation that you're in? And most people, instead of seeing the advantage, they see all the disadvantages because disadvantage vision is comforting because it removes a sense of responsibility. You know, it's not now you feel good about yourself and everybody else is broke too. So shit, why are you, why are you telling me, you know, like, and people say, well, it's so easy for you. Well, no, it, it, it wasn't. I grew up in the same place you were. I realized I got to get out of there. 
Uh, I got to go do something with my life. And most of the people that say stuff like that would never be willing to do what it took for the person that they're, they're, they're being negative toward did to get there. When people say to me, like, well, just TSP just took off for you. I often say I didn't bump into your ass at 3 a.m. when I was coming down from my bedroom to get my show outline ready so I could record it in my car on my way to work. Right? So if you won't do that, don't tell me it was easy. And it, it did go well. But it was also 30 years of my life preparing to do the thing that I didn't even know was going to be the thing that I was going to do. Being able to draw on this, you talk about work for experience. So one of the guys that I think is kind of a con artist, but he has a singular great piece of work, is Robert Kiyosaki. And his singular great piece of work was Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And in my opinion, John, I don't know if you, if you agree with this or not, I think he wrote it with one speck of brilliance to sell it to network marketing companies. He put one line in this book that didn't talk about network marketing, about network marketing, and knew all the Amway people would tell their downlines to buy it, and then it would become a bestseller, and then it would go. And that was a brilliant piece. But there's brilliance in that book. And one is never take a job for money. Take the job for experience. And that's a big thing of what I did. I took jobs across my life for the experience. It was hard to tell my wife, listen, I know that this job in sales went away, and I know there's 15 companies talking to me right now that want me to go back into sales that will give me a $100,000-plus-dollar-a-year job plus commission, everything we've always had for the last 10 years, and they'll give it to me tomorrow, but I'm going to have to go back on the road and keep doing this. I want to go into marketing. I've been doing this stuff with the Internet, and I want to take a job with a web marketing firm for forty-five grand a year. That's a difficult conversation to have. That's, that's not maintaining your, your, your standard of living at that point. But taking that step back allowed me to just get right back into the same earnings in, in another two years with a whole new skill set. And I was a better marketer than everybody around me because I had 10 years of sales to go with sales. it. And, and then the person that says, well, it's easy. Well, would you do that? Would you look offers sit in front of you, written offers? All you got to do is sign and they'll give you the job. And take a job for a third of that because you wanted to learn something new. And, and that is, you know, work for experience. Yeah. And that's the opportunity cost. Yeah. You, 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 you forego getting the candy bar today because yeah. you know if you wait, you're going to get, you know, two candy bars tomorrow. Little kids don't get that concept. They want the candy bar now. Yeah. Someone that's mature, someone that has the time preference, they know I'm going to wait. I'm going to take the opportunity cost. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of people do get that concept, but yeah. they, they get hoodwinked into thinking, oh, the opportunity concept or the opportunity cost is to go to college, right? Yeah. Go get a college education, go into debt, spend all this money. That's going to get me the good job, and that's really not going to get you the job. It's the experience, um, it's the experience and the ability to the willingness to work to make something better that's going to get you whatever that next job or the next opportunity is. Well, yeah, and I mean the college thing is a perfect example of people being sold a lie, but it's a comforting lie, so it's easy to believe. You can just get all these loans, and you're going to make more money in your life. Well, don't you think when you decide you're going to spend, let's say, $20,000 a year to go to school for four years, if you actually get it done in four years, which most people don't do anymore, you're going to invest $80,000, that you should take a look at what the actual jobs are that people that do that get what the median income is, and what the, the, the ROI is, the time to the return of the investment of time and money. That, that, and when you say that, people get angry. 
I'm talking about now I'm not talking about the kids. I'm talking about intelligent teachers and counselors, etc. To get angry in response to that is one of the most illogical things you could do. I'm going to spend 80 grand and I just want to see exactly what it's going to take for me to get my 80 grand back in value. And you understand why because what you're doing is you're questioning the status quo and you're questioning something they've based their entire life on. Right. And you're questioning the value of the degree that they have that they think is so important and so valuable. And you're saying not every child should go to college. And we have $80,000 welder's jobs sitting out there unfilled while we have people with fine arts degrees serving up lattes at Starbucks. Right. And, and then you are the evil person for pointing this out. And it just it, it boggles the mind until you understand the psychology behind it. Then it actually makes perfect sense. It's an ideology, right? I yeah. Mean, they're... they're You're shattering you their, their, their you're religion, their religion, their worldview, and and that's why you know we talked earlier about mentors. Your mentor is probably not going to be like you're probably not going to find them in school. He's probably not. You will rarely. Maybe you, you will find that great math teacher. There is that old professor that somebody recognizes brilliance in this young upcoming yeah. biotech but, guy. But, but, but for, the, for the most part, if the guy that's teaching you coding, yeah, is a brilliant coder, he wouldn't be teaching you coding. Right, <laughs> you, you wouldn't be going to the community college yeah. learning how to write yeah. Yeah. C basic from this guy because yeah. he wouldn't be there because he would be making lots of money working for Apple or Adobe or Facebook or something. So, it, it, and there it's are the hard. dedicated academics that they really—that's what they do—and they look for that brilliant student that they can pass on what they know to. But the odds are pretty low there because if you look <laughs> the odds, at the odds like, are against you. Look at college. Just look at a typical college lecture room. Where that, that PhD is lecturing. How many students are in there? And, and if he's going to be a good mentor, he can do that to one or two of those students at a time, and he might teach four classes a day with that many students in it. So if it was a lottery and it's not, right, then even your odds of drawing the winning ticket are pretty low. So that guy's also looking for that person that he sees that spark in, and if he doesn't see it in you, you're out of luck. So, yeah. Yeah. And I, I've always told my kids, and my kids complain about their school teacher or something, I always told them there's two types of people that become teachers. People that love to teach and people that can't do anything else. Okay, And you need to decide which teacher you have here, right? Let you draw your own yeah. conclusions. But that's really it. Those are the two kind. And, and if you do get that one that loves to be a teacher, they do want to help and grow people, and, and they're going to be extraordinary, but they're, they're hard to find. But the other side of it is it's just not teachers. Yeah. If you're working for your boss... He, you know, he's a mid-level manager. He's probably not going to be the guy that's going to help you get to the next level either. Because yeah. if he knew how to be there, he wouldn't be your boss. He'd be the CEO. Yeah. Right? I mean, the, the hardest part I think about and why I always hated corporate America was the, the worst people were in the middle, the middle manager guys. Because right? they were just good enough to get up to there, but not good enough not to advance good, They were never going to get up there, and they yeah. were never going to let you get up there because yeah. they didn't want you to get ahead of them. Yeah. So, you know, your biggest impediment to success was your boss. Yeah. The, the CEO was probably a great guy, but he was never going to know what you could do because yeah. your boss was never going to tell him. And he was and, never going to move up. And that guy was so never going to become in, the CEO. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 If, and, you, if, you, if you get lucky and you have an upwardly mobile boss, you can track right behind him and maybe lateral somewhere else at some point. He'll help you he'll along help the you way. Along. Yeah, if you, can, if you can attach yourself to a boss, that's, that's the ultimate. Yeah. But those are hard to find because most of these guys are kind of corporate survivors that are just trying to take care of their position. Where when you actually are that person that is upwardly mobile, the people that you work with along the way that you find to be the best, 
You always want to take, them, take with them with you. Yep. The guy that you want to hire is the one that says, well, if, if I come take this job, and let's say you're going to put him over a department with like 12 people in it, he's, he goes, I'm going to tell you flat out, a couple of them are going to have to go. I got two guys I need to bring in with me to do this. And that can be a scam too, but when that guy's sincere, you want that guy. Right. And that's usually the way it works. I mean, they yeah. usually are sincere, yeah. good guys. I know I had, I had one boss like that in my career that uh, one guy followed to a couple different jobs, but he was – He was a rain-making kind of guy, and that's that's what you're looking for. You're looking for that guy that's going to – he's going on to the next thing, and he's going to bring you with him because yeah. he knows you, you can do the job. Yeah. So you say next here, money is your ultimate slave. What do you mean by ultimate? Yeah, because when you – when you th you know, earlier on I said you first you learn to work, yeah. and then you learn to have people work for you, so you get employees – Um, but then the ultimate is, like we talked about in the very beginning, is that m money can be your slave. Money is not looking for any uh, any payback. No. So you get to keep it all yourself if you have money as your slave. And what it involves being is a different mentality. The, the owner of a company is, is the owner because he thinks like an owner. Uh, the, empl the employee is thinking like a slave. He's, he's thinking like someone that's broke. Yeah. If you, if you can make the money your slave, then... You're getting all the work of the employee, but you're not having to to pay that employee. And it's not, it kind of sounds like a greedy way to look at life. But if you adequately employ your resources to where money is your slave, you're able to hire other employees anyways. Yeah. You're never going to get there if you don't take advantage of that. And so by by running an efficient operation and having the money be your ultimate slave, you're in effect – creating more jobs and even if even if like I don't have any employees in my business yeah but that doesn't mean I don't employ people right yeah I hire my accountants right I don't do yeah. it myself I don't Absolutely. have an employee so I'm finding the best guy that learned how to be his own master and he's taking care of me and the mechanic right I'm not I don't hire a I don't have, you have a full-time mechanic yeah, that works in your garage works in my garage I found yeah. the best mechanic Yeah. And so what it allows is is that everybody becomes the best at what they want to do, and you're picking and having those best people not work for you, but you're, you bu you're buying their service. You take care of those people. You refer them business. If they're in some kind of an industry where they get tips, you get you tip them better than average. Because like I have fishing guides that I do that with, and the reason I do that is when I have somebody come into town and I want to take them fishing, I want to be the guy that they'll they'll be like, I will make a spot. To take you out, right? And and there and so when your car's broken, you want the guy that says, uh, I'll, "I'll push this oil change out today afternoon, so I can get you back on the road today, John." Yeah, right. It's going to take and care of John. There's there's a there's a thing about being a good employee. There's also a thing about being a good boss. And when it comes into a contractual relationship, and you've got one side performing a service, there's also on the other side being a good client. Like with the, the, I've had people do different remodeling work for me. Some of them sucked. I don't care. I want them gone. I don't ever want them again. The guy that did my outdoor kitchen for me, he was fantastic. I went out of my way to not just be the guy that paid his bills on time, but to be a be a good client. Can I help you out with anything? Do you need some? You need it. They, it we got rained out. I'm not going to bitch at them because it rained. You know, as they got toward the end, and I knew that they were doing a good job. You know, I went down the road and picked up two 12 packs of beer and gave it to the their general laborers at the end of the day. I was also not an idiot. I didn't give it to them at noon. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. right? Yeah, wait, I waited until they, they were done for the driving day. Driving out the driveway. Yeah, and like so, when, when I call that guy and say, "Hey, I want to do another edition or something," it, you you think that like that's not a hard thing to do? But I now know how hard it is to find a good contractor to do work like that. I want that guy 
And I want him to be able to adjust his schedule to work with me. And I, I, I want to be worthy of that. Yeah. And so it's a two-way street and all value for value exchanges. And that's where money becomes your ultimate slave because with money, you're buying, what you're buying there is talent, right? You're using your... And loyalty of that talent. Yeah. You're, you're buying your... You're taking your resources that you created this money by your own efforts. Yeah. But you don't want to build your own kitchen back there, right? Yeah. So you're taking... What you're good at, though, being the TSP guy which makes you money, and then you're taking that money and you're hiring another guy yeah. that's that's the best at what he does because he can't do a podcast, but he, no. can, but he can do... He can do amazing stonework. Amazing stonework, yeah. right? But you're, So you're not hiring... An, it's not like you're getting an employee that's just coming to work for the job. Yeah. You're getting the best. And that's, yeah. a, that's the difference between you know working with other business owners and, and hiring things as opposed to having employees. Because employees, a lot of times, they're coming for the paycheck. Yeah. Yeah, and there's nothing wrong with that, but, you know, there's a limit to what that could do. What you say here is the boss or the owner has money, the employee is broke. And I'll tell you what, some companies, they want you to be broke as an employee. They always want you to be broke. I, I had a sales opportunity one time where they told me flat out, your salary history isn't high enough. And I'm like, well, yeah, that's why I want to come work for you, so I can make more money. They said, well, look, the, the lady... Uh, that was kind of one of their, their PAs, leveled with me and said, they don't think you're in enough debt to be hungry enough to work hard enough. And I'm like, well, I'm never going to work here then because I don't do debt. right? I mean, that's not what I do. I make lots of money and I keep lots of money and I hide little money in different holes all over the place. That, that's, that's my goal. I don't want to be in debt. They were looking for a guy that had you know, like a $70,000 yacht he had to make payments on, right. and it slipped down on the, like Long Island Sound or something like that. And I'm like, that's, I wouldn't care how much money I make. I'm never going to be that guy. When I was in corporate America, I had sat in meetings and worked with HR where those kind of things were discussed of, okay, you know, we're giving out this sales bonus this year. Yeah. And we know Fred, he's, he's buying a yacht, so that's good because he's going to have to work even harder next yeah. year. And, yeah. And this guy with his bonus, he's, uh, he's getting, he's moving up to a house in the country club. Yeah. Where his, his mortgage is going up three times and they want you locked in in those things. They don't want you. So they, you've got to come back and do it again next year. You've got to come back. Year. Yeah. Cause they don't, they don't want you, uh, which is literally slavery. Them. It's that, slavery through enticement and, and debt on the other side, you know, and like, but being the guy that can pay the bills, that's valuable because like when I was in cabling sales, we had some clients we really didn't enjoy working for, but we'd always put a bid in on their work. And the phrase that we would use between ourselves to describe that person, well, his money's green, which means when I send that invoice in, he pays it right away. And we never end up in a collections issue or something like that. And making my commission, I didn't make my commission when I made the sale. I didn't make the commission when I got the PO. I didn't make the commission when we went and did the work. I made the commission at the end of the job based on the gross profit on the job plus the guy paying the bill. When the guy paid the bill, I got paid. So I would tolerate an asshole. But I knew that when I went in there and put a $150,000 bid in, when we got the job done, he was going to pay and I was going to get paid. And there... You don't have to be a jerk, but when you're the guy that pays his bills on time, you do come first. Always, every single time, because money talks. Yep. And, and, and even as the employee, you know, a lot of employees will say, well, you know, the boss doesn't do anything or, yeah. or you know, he's, he's lucky just because he owns his place, yeah. but, but he has the capital. Yeah. If he didn't have when the capital. When you take your check to the bank on Friday, it clears. It clears because it comes from his account, but even, even the equipment you're using on your job, yeah. he has that capital. That the land resources and all that stuff, it, it came because he invested his capital to create this company so you had a place to come to work every day. Yeah. And, and that's why the owner has the money. And But like we talked about, you can buy your way out of slavery. You want to be the owner? You want to be the boss? 
start saving your money and figuring out how to have it work for you. And my old partner Neil, like the contractors, he had contractors all over the all over the world. You know, running payroll in you know millions of dollars a week. And I don't think any of them really have any idea how many times there was. It wasn't like we were going to get stuck, and he wasn't going to get his money back. But there was a cash flow issue that week, and he'd write a check for fifteen thousand dollars or twenty five thousand dollars that week to make sure payroll got done. He's like, we will never not pay a contractor in the field. We will absolutely never have a guy sitting there waiting for his check. He said, you know, if I have to pull my Amex blackout and put down a hundred grand on my Amex this week to make payroll, I will make payroll. Bitching about a boss that does that is why you are not the boss. And that's kind of what we're kind of wrapping up here with. Right. So let's talk a little bit about debt as we as we finish. The magic of compound interest that we talked about before, when we move to the debt side, it's working against you. Right, yeah, so the, that magic becomes a curse, right? On the, on the one side, when you're the creditor, it's working for you, but when you're the debtor, it's putting you into slavery. And we talked about the law of 72 and how your money can double, Your debt All, can double. Yeah, the, the <laughs> debt works the other way. You know, I think mo I'm sure TSP listeners know this, but for people that don't, if you only pay the minimum balance on your credit card, you're never going to pay off the debt. No. And the credit card company is happy with that. They love they, that. They love that. They they want that. That's why it's like the first thing on the line. Minimum yeah. payment. There's an old Ziggy cartoon. Remember Ziggy? Mm -hmm. And he's reading this letter, and it says, Dear Valued Cardholder, By constantly paying your balance in full, on, uh, in full on time, you have avoided costly interest and late fees. Therefore, we are informing you that we are canceling your account. And that's, they're not in the business of having you, you know, pay your bills on time in full. They're in the business of having you service your debt. That's, that's their dream. They want to find out just how much money can I give you before you default, and I don't want you to go past that. And I want you to make that $300 payment to me every month, For the, for the rest of, of your, your life. life. And, when you, your and life. when you die, they're going to come after your estate if you have anything yeah. left. Yeah. And if they get it, it's gravy. If they don't, that's fine, they don't too. Care. They've made Because, yeah, yeah. Look, at, look at your mortgage. If you have a 30-year mortgage, oh. look at the principal payment. I don't care. And I don't care if it's a you know, a 3% loan or a yeah. 10 or whatever. You are paying more for your house multiple times over yeah. over 30 years than if you paid it in 15 or 10 or whatever. And, Would you and, think they were doing it to be nice? Yeah, that's, that's what the point I tell to people. It's not that they're evil. Bankers no. aren't evil. They're just making money. And it's up to you <clears throat> to realize debt, debt is, is the slavery part of it. The magic of compounding interest is when it's being paid to you. It's a curse when it's going away from you. Absolutely. And debt is <laughs> slavery, period. I've been saying that period. since the beginning. People get pissed off at me. And that doesn't mean you can't leverage debt properly. But in the end, debt is slavery. And you have to decide, you know, am I actually leveraging that debt intelligently or am I, am I attaching myself to that debt? Yeah. I mean, other people's money is a legitimate business tool. It is not the way to buy a stereo or a computer yeah. for your house. Yeah. De debt, when I say, you know, talk about debt being slavery, I'm talking about debt in consumer products, yes. discretionary spending. If you're using debt to go out and buy your dinner, if you're using debt to, you know, buy your computer that you play games with, yeah. or to pay your Comcast bill, those are, not, that's the form of slavery. If you're using debt, to get a, a, a good education Correct. that's going to pay dividends. Where you that's did a, a spreadsheet. Yeah, right? and you know that you're going to make more money yeah. than you, in, in two years, you're going to make more money than what it costs you to go to school for four or something like that, yeah. where you know the payback. That's not debt. That's using leverage. That's an investment. Um, 
And, and you know, even with your home, I realize most people are not going to have $300,000 or whatever to go out and buy a house. So, yeah, you're going to take years to pay it off. You're not going to do it overnight. But if you're taking 30 or 40 or 50 or 60 years to pay off your house, which is where these mortgages are going to, you're going to start yeah. seeing 50-year mortgages. mortgages. We, we were talking just uh, earlier today about RVs. People are taking 20, 25-year mortgages on an RV. On an RV. Um, but the payment's only $250 a month. Jack, it's only $250. You know, at the end of the day, you're ending up paying $300,000 for a van. Well, well, think about it. Isn't a reverse mortgage exactly what you're talking about? Because a guy pays on his mortgage for 25 years, 28 years, whatever, almost owns his house, but he's broke. And, and so then he basically sells his house back to the bank and then leaves his heirs with nothing in the end. Until he, he, he starts broke and he ends up ends broke. broke. And, he, and he never owns the house. And how do you the, create generational wealth in that society? You the, don't. The bank always owns the house there, right? He, yeah. doesn't, he does not own the house. The bank owns the house. You and, know, that's what, he, so he, and that's where people say, well, I'm, if I'm renting, I'm just throwing money away. Well, if you have a mortgage, in a sense, you're still throwing the money away because you don't own the house yet. Yeah. And, and again, you've got to run the numbers. It, I'm not saying you've got to run on pay off your house today. Yeah. But I'm just saying, look at what you're doing. Look where you're putting your money and see what you own and, and look where that return I'm is. I'm probably going to get some angry emails from Native Americans for saying this, but it's true and it's math and it's money and it's the way it works. I, I checked it out and the average uh, like stipend that, that, that Natives receive that live on reservation and what have you is about $800 a month. Now, if someone came to you as a financial advisor and said, I will commit to you for the next 30 years, I will give you $400 a month. Do you think you could help that person retire as a millionaire? Oh, yeah, think about it. I mean, I mean, $800 a month for one person is almost enough to fund two people's Roth IRAs. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, and you know if you fund your Roth IRA for 30 years, you're, you're, retiring and, and a you're going to retire at least a millionaire. At least a millionaire. If, if so getting just you know, 6% return. If they would return. take half of that and put it away and then do enough work to pay the bills for the rest then what we should see on Native American reservations is one of the most powerful places for generational wealth to exist in the world. But we don't. Yeah, what do we see? We don't. And I'm not blaming anybody. I'm talking the mentality is there. It's the same mentality of the people that live where I came from in Pottsville. This is my existence. This is how it is. And there's nothing that prevents them from doing that. There are some things, I'm going to hear it, I know they can't make money off their land and some other things like that. They, they can't but, sell it, in, right? Yeah, but they still have this guaranteed stipend income. People in Alaska, what if the average Alaskan took that oil stipend every year and just threw it in a retirement account? Just every year. I know sometimes it's a little bit of money, sometimes it's a lot of money. Just every year did that. But it's the behavior that results in a debt-based lifestyle instead of an income-based lifestyle. And that's what we're really talking about here. In the end, the difference is debt-based versus income-based lifestyle. And that's why we finish up where we started, yeah. where a portion of yours is... A, yours a, to keep. A, your portion of what you earn is yours to keep. And, and, that, and, that's, and the keep is to keep, not, yeah. not to spend. Not to put... Not, yeah. not to go buy, not to give to Apple... Yeah. Not, not to give to Facebook, not to give to... Uh, not to, not to, to have to a fine order. meal and fine robes, as the guy says in the book, yeah, right? Yours to, to keep. keep. Keep means you make it a slave. It's forever money. It's forever money. It's and yours. if you ever spend anything from it, you're spending its great-grandchildren in the form of compounding interest to provide you your retirement income. Yeah. And you actually, if you do it right, you actually never take that money you saved back out. 
it's it's there forever, and it goes down a generational wealth to your yeah, heirs. And I I never intend to spend my Roth IRA. No, for, they call it forever money. It's forever money. It's the, it's it's money that's tax free. It's it's there's no uh, the way the laws are currently written. Uh, there's no required minimum distribution at age yeah. seventy and a half. Yeah. Um. Th there's no reason for me to ever spend that money. No. And I hope I never do. Yeah. And the other side of it, though, we should finish up with. You have to train your children right, or they'll piss away their wealth. And there's a lot of examples of that in the book where one of the wealthiest men in, in, in Babylon gives his wealth to a stranger that became a student because he knows his children will squander the money. Yeah, and, and that's the misconception that I see of inheritance tax and all the things the government tries to do where they, you know, they want to go after the wealthy and things. Yeah. Because generally, not always, but generally, You know, wealth is gone in the third or fourth generation. Anyways. Absolutely. The, the grandson squanders what the old man made, you know. Yeah. And and so kind of human nature gets rid of it anyways. You don't need the, the grandson that always thought the old man was a miser and cheap right. and right, exactly. yeah, greedy and all he did was work. Yeah, the grandson's going to spend all that money. So you really don't need the government to come in and take people's money because their grandkids will piss it away. Yeah, because with a final thought there, the fool and his money... Soon, Soon parted, right? Yep. Well, John, hey, man, I appreciate you taking the time to do this uh, here in spite of some you know, technical issues we had, Ferguson setting the dogs off, Patrick calling me on my computer, but it was fun. Well, why don't me and you and Nick go get something to eat and drink before Patrick gets here? That would be kind of a cool <laughs> idea, right? He's bringing food, though. Oh, well, then we'll yeah. let Patrick come. All right, guys. Well, hey, uh, it's been great. John, again, thanks for doing this with me. My pleasure. Jack, always happy to be here. So I really enjoyed doing that. I hope you enjoyed the little surprises there, the dogs barking, Patrick coming in uh, in the middle on a phone call and not having a clue. He said after he got to the house, he didn't really know if he was really on the air or not. Uh, he said he was going to maybe act fool a little bit, just mess with us, and then like, well, maybe I better not. And yeah, he, he did good, Patrick. Um, anyway, really great show. Uh, really great guy in John Pugliano. And I'm talking about, listen, guys, this dude's a servant. He really is. He's one of the finest people I know, and uh, he, he's always looking to try to serve others. So um, he just—we're just lucky to have him. I'll, I'll leave it at that. With that, I—I um, I want to uh, just kind of go right into our song of the day. And our song of the day today is by Evanescence. Uh, lead singer here is Amy Lee, who I think has an amazing voice. The song is called "Field of Innocence," and it's actually based on a poem. Uh, so this is when I say sometimes you know it's poetry to music. This actually is, and the the entire theme here is this this girl looking back on her childhood, and with all the evil that she's seen in the world, all the bad that she's seen in the world, she's wishing she could go back to when everything was just wonderful, when she was a little girl. And there was no bad in her mind. There was no evil in her mind. There was no scary in her mind. The, the world that children have in that state of innocence, where even when there's some bad things, it's not really a big deal to them. You know, they might be scared once in a while and need you to dream a story before they go to bed. But in the end, kids have this, this wonderful outlook on life that as we grow and we learn the truth about the world, we tend to lose that. And it is, it is true that it's a lot like the movie The Matrix, You can't unknow it. You can't go back. And there's many things in life, not just bad, but there's many things just like once you become aware, once you recognize a pattern, you can't not see it anymore. You want an example of that one? So in the FedEx logo, there's an arrow 
Now, if you've seen this already, you know what I'm talking about. If you haven't, this is one of the most recognized logos in the world, the FedEx logo. Well, inside the FedEx logo, there's an arrow. I mean it. It points in the forward direction. And it is there on purpose. There's no way it's an accident. And it's designed to convey subliminally that FedEx moves things where you want them to go. Now, go look up that logo. It might take you a minute to see it. But once you see it, your ability to not see it ever again will be gone forever. Once you know it's there, it's so obvious that you can't unsee it. So there are things in this world that it is, it is that red pill moment. We take it, we see it, we accept it, and we can't unknow it. And in many instances, it doesn't make us happier. But it does make us better suited to live in the world that we're in and to get the most out of it. They say that ignorance is bliss, but I'll also say that ignorance can get you killed. So while I love the sentiment of this song... Looking back to that that joy and beauty that you have as a child about the world, there's two lessons here that I see. Instead of mourning the loss, understand the gain. That's one. That really that does fit kind of with what we talked about today. The other side of it, though, is as parents and and anybody that influences the lives of children, we tend in this community to really resent the bubble wrapping of children, and, and I do, and I think it's just too much. But we need to be careful that we don't move them too fast. Let them have this time for as long as makes sense. There's things they don't need to know about, they don't need to worry about. When I see kids, you know, at political rallies that are 10 years old, chanting nonsense for either side, it hurts my heart. They don't need to know that, they don't need to worry about that, they need to be involved in that when they're 10 years old. You know, let them be children. Let them have this moment. And maybe they'll be less likely to look back with it in a sorrow and more look back with it with a sense of hope and use what they know as they grow to build the best lives they can. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help me figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. 